As we prepare to hear God's Word preached to us, our text for today is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22. This is what God's Word says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Thank you, Caleb, for reading scripture for us. And a very good afternoon or good morning, depending on what time or what day you are watching this. Uh, it's unfortunate that we can't gather today because of uh, these unforeseen circumstances, but do be in prayer for our cleaner. I think her name is Agnes, so do pray for Agnes and her family that uh, should be well and that they would uh, all be uh, well too. Uh, much, much going on in the life of the church still, as you heard from the announcements. You know, we've got newcomers meeting coming up. We've got a, a new uh, membership class coming up, Church Matters. So if you are, especially if you're new to the church, do uh, consider signing up for one of those uh, meetings, either the newcomers meeting uh, or indeed come for the Church Matters class as well. It's a good way to get to know us better. 
uh, we'd love to welcome you into this body. Uh, but even if you're just checking the church out, it's a good way to find out more about who we are, what we believe, and how we uh, organize ourselves and our life together according to what Scripture calls us to. So much to, much to pray for, as well as the equip, upcoming equip class as well. So let me pray for us, and then let's look at uh, Scripture together. Let's all pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are merciful and gracious. Father, we praise you, the God who knows us, the God who saves us. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive from you. Help us to respond to you with hearts strengthened by your grace. May we stand firm in the true grace of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as a father of two sons, uh, Zachary and Ian, you know, I know how important it is to be involved in their lives. Uh, so I take them to school every day. I play games with them, you know, particularly tennis and chess. And I help them out with their studies uh, when I can. And like other parents, my wife Claire and I, we desire good for our children. But we must also be mindful of the perils of over-parenting. Uh, maybe in this exam season, uh, these perils are particularly uh, present. You know, parents can desire the success of their children so much that they try to shield their children from you know, any kind of frustration, any difficult experience, or any failure. You know, but I think this can end up doing more harm than good to the child in the longer run. You know, it can leave children ill-prepared for the tough realities of life. And as we've seen in this season, the tough realities of life are very real. Like a wise parent, the Apostle Peter doesn't overprotect Christians from the realities of the Christian life. Trials will come, and Peter is transparent about the difficulties of being uh, uh, exiles and sojourners in a world that is hostile to Jesus and his followers. You know, as we heard in our text last week, we follow a suffering servant, and this servant was rejected by men. Uh, Peter has warned us before in earlier parts of the letter that we will be misunderstood and maligned as followers of Christ, and we may have to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly, as it says in verse 19 in chapter 2. Uh, despite doing good and submitting to earthly authority, God may have us walk through paths of difficulty, paths of suffering. So how will we respond when we suffer? How will we respond? We might be tempted to lash out and strike back when others sin against us. We might be tempted to retreat in fear and anxiety. Or we might be tempted to conform to the world to conform to the culture and give up trying to be distinct so that the offence of the cross is removed. Now, one of Peter's purposes in writing this letter for us is to prepare believers like you and I for suffering so that we will not be blindsided or surprised or shaken when trials come. And indeed, this is what Peter says in chapter 4, verse 12, where he doesn't want these believers to be caught unawares when the trials of life emerge. And in 1 Peter 3 verse 8, all the way to the end of chapter 4, Peter focuses on how believers should respond when we suffer for Jesus' sake. So this is a key 
portion of the letter, First uh, Peter. And suffering saints need encouragement. And in our passage, Peter wants us to realize that even though we suffer for Jesus' sake, we can press on with hope. And in Christ, we have the hope of blessing and we have the hope of victory. So those are the two key points from this passage as we work our way through the text. The hope of blessing and the hope of victory. So firstly, the hope of blessing, looking at verses 8 to 17. Uh, Verse 8 begins with the word finally, which indicates that Peter is summing up this section of his letter. He has exhorted Christians to live servant-hearted lives, characterized by humble, godly submission, whether to the government, to their bosses, or wives, to their own husbands. And believers are to do good for the sake of the gospel, even if it means suffering for it. Following Jesus in a fallen world isn't easy especially when we are strangers and exiles. So where will we find community and encouragement? I think Peter says right here in verse 8 that it ought to be in the church among fellow pilgrims. As it says in Proverbs 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So the local church, this gathering of believers, this is where we should find refuge and encouragement, especially as we journey through this fallen world. But I say ought, because as we know, and some of us from painful personal experience, this isn't always the case. Christians have been discouraged and disillusioned by their church experience. And it is especially sad and tragic when Christians leave the church to seek comfort in the world. And Peter understood this. Peter was being a very realistic pastor and he understands how there may be times when believers might be tempted to leave community because of hurt that they've experienced in the Christian community. Which is why he commands us in chapter 2 verse 1 to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And instead, this is what we should be in 3 verse 8. The church community is to be a refuge for world-weary saints to be refreshed. Therefore, we are to have unity of mind. I think this is an important starting point, that when we gather as God's people, we should focus not on our differences, on the little things that divide us, but we should focus on what we have in common. And we have friends, we have so much in common. We love Jesus together. That's the fundamental unity that we have in Christ. That's the glue that holds us together, as different as we are, different walks of life, different demographics, different ages, uh, different amounts of time that we've had in this church. But, But beloved, this is the one thing that holds us together, this common love for Jesus. And Peter reminds us in, in the start of this, his exhortation here, be, have unity of mind, be like-minded because we trust and obey the same gospel. We love the same Lord. We follow the same Christ. Also have sympathy. Right? Because of this unity that we have in Christ, we're able to walk side by side with one another through the different seasons of life, through the difficulties of life. As our fellow brothers and sisters suffer hostility in this world, what a blessing it is to be able to walk side by side with them, to have 
sympathy for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with one another, to weep with one another. And Peter goes on to say, have brotherly love. And this brotherly love speaks of the fact that we belong to the same spiritual family. This term was reserved only for families in New Testament times, biological families. But here Peter uses that term and he applies it to the church, the spiritual family of God under one heavenly father. Have brotherly love for one another. Have a tender heart as well a heart that shows grace, a heart that displays compassion and mercy to one another. As we suffer in this world, we might be tempted to take out our frustrations in the Christian community to get impatient or hard with one another. And Peter reminds us, be patient, forgive, be gentle, have a tender heart. Do not grumble about one another. Do not gossip about one another. Do not complain to one another about one another, but instead be slow to anger, be quick to forgive, have a tender heart. Be humble. Don't insist on our own way, but put aside personal preferences and opinions for the good of our brothers and sisters, for the sake of unity in the gospel. Be willing to sacrifice our comfort and convenience to serve one another. I think as Caleb mentioned earlier in the service, the fact that we, I'm, I'm here with other members of the, of the team, I think shows that there are these folks in the church who are sacrificially putting aside their comfort and convenience to serve us. So let's be thankful for them. And let's ourselves also be willing to sacrifice our own comfort and convenience in order to do good to this spiritual body. Put the interest of others first. Build up the whole body of Christ. Encourage one another as we journey heavenward through this world's wilderness. So having spoken about the characteristics of Christian community as we live together as exiles and sojourners, you know, how should we respond when we suffer unjustly? Peter goes on to say in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Basically, don't sin in return when we are sinned against. Beloved, we may be unable to change how someone treats us, but we can change how we respond to that person. Peter encourages Christians, don't escalate the conflict, don't retaliate. It's not tit for tat but rather bless, especially bless those who seek to hurt us. This is very countercultural. This maybe goes against the grain of uh, how we think in this world, where we're encouraged to assert our own rights, to to stand up for ourselves, to defend our honour. But Peter echoes Jesus' words, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And also Paul's words in Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, don't get into a cycle of 
uh, hurt and retaliation. Instead, break that cycle. Bless. Choose to bless. You know, this is how we portray the beauty of Christ, who prayed, Father, forgive for those who crucified him. You know, this was alien to New Testament, in New Testament times. This was alien to Greco-Roman culture, which expected people to fight for their own honour. Indeed, it was counted as shameful to not stand up for your rights. It was seen as foolish and weak. And perhaps this is also alien to our Gyasu culture as well, which expects us to seek our own interest, to look out for number one, to champion our own rights. And we retaliate because we often don't want to be seen to appear weak in the eyes of others. So why then should we respond with blessing? It seems not to make worldly sense to do so. So why respond with blessing? Peter tells us in the second part of verse 9, because to this you were called. To this you were called. God has called us to this. God calls us to walk in the steps of our Lord Jesus who himself suffered for the sake of others and he responded to that suffering by blessing. And indeed, Jesus has blessed us although we were his enemies. Our sins nailed him to the cross and through his death, he has blessed us. And since Jesus has blessed us, in Christ we have been blessed to bless others. We bless that we might obtain a blessing, Peter tells us. Now, as we think about this verse, you know, bless in order to obtain a blessing, you know, this is not to be understood in a transactional or mercenary way. So this is not sort of prosperity teaching where it says, oh, if you do good, then maybe good will be done for you. So do more good so that you have more good coming to you. Now, this is not the kind of transactional uh, teaching that Peter is putting forward. You know, this is clearly not salvation by works. Right? We're not saved because we bless others. Rather, Peter is saying that blessing others shows that we ourselves have received mercy from Jesus. We're able to bless others because He has blessed us first, because He gave His life for us. Now, how else are we able to love our enemies unless Christ has loved us first? Now, in the Old Testament, David was an example of repaying good for evil. Right? Unjustly treated by Saul, who tried to kill him, David had to flee to the Philistines. And while he was there with them, he was deeply, deeply humiliated. If you read that account, you hear about how he had to pretend to be insane simply because he feared for his life. You know, as, as Caleb mentioned earlier in the service, Psalm 34, which was our call to worship, is David's personal reflection on this experience of his suffering. Uh, it was written when David, uh, quote, changed his behaviour before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And subsequently, David had several opportunities to kill Saul and to take revenge on this man who had so unjustly pursued him even uh, in an attempt to put him to death. Yet David did not. He didn't lift his hand against Saul. Instead, David trusted God and God ultimately delivered him. You know, it is significant that David begins Psalm 34 by blessing God. 
You know, Psalm 34 verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. And then later on in the psalm, David invites us, uh, readers of this psalm, to trust in God as well and to experience God's blessing for ourselves. Right? David says in verse 8 of Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see the, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Bless, in this case, bless God that you may be blessed in Him. No, Peter has already quoted from Psalm 34. You know, he's, he's alluded to Psalm 34 in chapter 2, verse 2. Right? Taste and see. You've tasted that the Lord is good. And then here in verses 10 to 12, Peter quotes uh, at length from Psalm 34. Right? He says uh, in verses 10 to 12 of our text, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter tells us this is what it looks like to take refuge in God. This is what it looks like to trust Him. Right? It doesn't mean that we are passive as we trust God to take care of us. But rather, Peter says, in quoting from Psalm 34, when we trust God, it means that we will then love others, that we will bless even those who make us suffer, who treat us unjustly. You know, this is what it looks like to really entrust ourselves to God. This is what it looks like to trust Him. Right, so if you're wondering what it looks like to trust God in your marriage, to trust God in your relationships, to trust God at work, uh, I think Peter tells us it's simply to do good. Right? As, as you do good, especially to those who treat you unjustly, that shows that you are trusting God, that you are depending on Him, that you are looking to Him for your vindication and for your reward. That's why Peter says we will be blessed if we bless others, especially those who wish us harm. And Peter says instead of retaliating, you know, speak words of life, build up rather than tear down. Do good, not harm. And as God's elect exiles, we are to be peacemakers. Our, our lives are to bring peace to those around us, to our environments. Don't take matters into our own hands, but entrust ourselves to God. Rely on Him. Look to Him. Trust Him to vindicate and help us. And these verses from this psalm also remind us that God sees, right? The, eye, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He, he sees us. Right, our hurts and our sorrows are not unknown to Him. He sees us and He hears us when we cry to Him for help. We have a sure hope of blessing because we have been born again, as Peter tells us in chapter 1, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, Peter says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verses 13 and 14. Now, wait a minute, Peter. You, you know, you've just said Christians will suffer. So how can you now say that no one will harm us? You know, I think Peter is not referring to our temporal circumstances. He's not promising Christians that no temporal harm will ever come to us. In, indeed, you know, as, Peter, as Caleb mentioned in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, Peter himself was crucified upside down uh, for the faith, 
He died under excruciating circumstances. So Peter is not referring to temporal circumstances, but rather Peter is referring to our eternal security. Remember what Peter has already written in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. That inheritance is secure. Nothing will take that away. Nothing will uh, corrupt that inheritance. And indeed, we ourselves are being guarded by God's power, guarded by God's power for that inheritance. Nothing and no one will ultimately be able to harm God's God's people. God Himself will protect His treasured possession. So we can bless others fully confident that God is able to keep and bless us. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. As Jesus Himself said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but have no power over the soul. Instead, fear Him who has power over body and soul. Fear God. In the Old Testament, this is the second Old Testament example, when Israel and Syria threatened the nation of Judah, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah was in a difficult spot. Right? How, what, what would he do in that situation? What kind of counsel could he give to Judah's king, which faced such a, a deadly human threat? And the prophet Isaiah was strengthened by God's word. And the Lord said to him in Isaiah chapter 8, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honour as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. You know, indeed, Peter quotes from Isaiah in this passage as well. He quotes from Isaiah to encourage us to look to God, not our circumstances. Beloved, if we just looked at our circumstances, we are inclined to fear. We are inclined to become afraid of all the unpredictabilities, all the uncertainty of life. But Peter says, look to God. Let Him be your fear. Fear God and not man. Remember that we worship a God who is almighty, a God who is for us, a God who is with us, and He has overcome the world. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Instead, worship Christ, honour Christ as holy. That's what Peter is encouraging us to do. Don't fear man, but Honour Christ as holy in our hearts. Set Him apart. Worship Him. Consecrate ourselves to Him. To live for Him and for His sake. He is glorified when we trust Him. And indeed, when we keep on doing good, despite suffering for it, it may open doors for the gospel. This is such a counter-cultural response to suffering. In a cynical, dog-eat-dog world that is full of bitterness and despair, a servant-hearted life of joy and hope is strangely compelling. It will provoke curious questions from others, seeking to know, know why on earth 
would we live in this way where it seems to be so detrimental to our immediate interest? Why on earth would we do this? They, would, they, might, want to know what, what is the, they might want to know a reason for the hope that is in us. You know, certainly, we are not living for the present. We're not living for immediate returns, but we're living for something that will come, hope. We're hoping in something that will come. And if we live in this way, others around us might ask us, you know, what, what, what is this hope that you're living for? What is this hope that allows you to endure such difficult present circumstances as you look to what's to come? Now, beloved, I, I pray that we will live such distinct lives in the world that we provoke such curious queries about our faith and hope in Christ. And I think it's worth reflecting on this. Think about how we live during the week, how we are at the workplace, how we are at home, how we are at school, in our various friendships and relationships. You know, are we living in such a way as to provoke questions, you know, curiosity about why we are different from the culture around us? Do we live in such a way as to point to a future hope? Do we live in such a way as to show that we're not living for the immediate present? Right? We're not living for gratification now in this life. Do we live in such a way as to show that our hope is fixed on this imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us by God? Now, is this how we're living, brothers and sisters? Would our lives provoke this kind of curiosity from those around us? May walking as Jesus walked give us opportunity to talk about Jesus. The second example, uh, well, rather the third example from the Old Testament that I'd like to share is something that Caleb mentioned as well in his sermon a couple of weeks ago. It's a really good example of what this looks like. Second uh, Kings 5, you know, the story of Naaman's servant girl, Naaman was a general in the Syrian army, and obviously Syria was Israel's enemy at that time. And Syria had raided the land of Israel and carried off some prisoners of war. And this girl was one of those prisoners of war, and she ended up in the home of Naaman, and she was serving Naaman as a prisoner of war, as someone who was captured on one of Naaman's raids into Israel. And you can imagine, as, as a prisoner of war, you can imagine the the resentment, the, the, the hatred, the anger that one might feel against uh, their captors. And, and yet, I believe this servant girl lived differently. She responded quite distinctly to her lot in life. You know, I, I think she lived her life quite uh, with great integrity, with great hope in the power and grace of God. I, I think one thing that the story doesn't mention in the Old Testament is why would Naaman, this uh, prestigious, this high-ranking general, why would he listen to the counsel of a servant girl? I think that's a curious twist in the story that, you know, Second Kings doesn't really fill us in on the detail, but perhaps, perhaps, it's because this servant girl had lived such a life of honour and integrity in, her, in Naaman's household. Perhaps she had served him so well, despite being mistreated and unjustly uh, dealt with at times. You know, perhaps she had lived with such uh, obedience to God that Naaman was curious. Right? And, and that gained her uh, Naaman's ear and, and he listened to her counsel when she encouraged him to 
seek help from Elisha, the prophet, who could heal him from his leprosy. Beloved, I, I, I pray that this is how we would live in the world, that our lives would create opportunities for the gospel in this way. May our good works commend the gospel and help us gain a hearing, especially in a world that is increasingly hostile to the faith. And when we have opportunity to speak of Jesus, may we always be prepared to explain how his death and resurrection give us hope. Equip ourselves to share this good news. There's there's some helpful resources that I'd like to highlight. Uh, These are some books that are helpful to help us understand the gospel and to explain the gospel. What is the gospel? By Greg Gilbert. Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, Christianity Explored. And these are really helpful resources. So if you're looking for some good resources to equip you to share the gospel, these are good places to start. What we say matters, but how we say it matters as well. And Peter goes on to say in verse 15, we are to explain the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. Not only are we to tell the gospel, but we are to embody the good news about Jesus by being like Jesus. We get the gospel right, both by being Christ-centered with our words and also Christ-like with our lives. We walk the talk. So Peter says in verses 16 and 17, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So that's the the blessing of hope, or rather the, the hope of blessing that we have. And which brings us to our second point, the hope of victory. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Peter says because it is God's will. Peter encourages us to know that our suffering is not beyond the control of our loving Heavenly Father who wisely works through our trials for our good and for His glory. And as we heard last week, we are called to follow in the steps of Jesus, the suffering servant. And Peter says that, makes a similar point again in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered according to God's will to accomplish God's plan to save sinners. Our sins have separated us from a holy God and because we have turned against our Creator, we face His righteous judgment against us. But God so loved the world that He gave His beloved Son to save sinners like us. And Peter says Jesus is the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous. Jesus is perfectly innocent. He was without sin. And in fact, Jesus went to the cross precisely because He was being obedient to His Heavenly Father. He died not because of His own sins, but He died in obedience to the Father's will. And He died for the sins of the unrighteous. Jesus suffered once, which means His death is enough to atone for sin. He has, as Hebrews 9.26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And there is nothing we can or need to contribute. 
we simply rely on Christ alone. He suffered once for all. There's no other sacrifice that we need. He makes us right with God and He reconciles us with God. He brings us back to the God whom our sins have separated us from. And Jesus' victory is the main point of verses 18 to 22. And this is a key difference between these verses and the earlier verses in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. You know, if you compare these two passages, they both focus on, they both do talk about the death of Jesus, but their their main points are quite different. In verses 21 and 25 of chapter 2, those verses focus on Jesus as the suffering servant. Here, in our text, in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, these verses emphasize not so much Jesus as a suffering servant, but they emphasize Jesus' triumph over Satan, sin, and death. You know, in verse 18, Peter says he was put to death in the flesh. Then he goes on to say, but made alive by the Spirit. And then in verse 22, Peter says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So these two verses, 18 and 22, are really important to help us to understand the main point of these verses. Now, there's a lot of stuff in between that is difficult to get through, and and we'll get to that in a minute. But it's important to see what the main point of these verses are. And the main point is clear. Whatever we make of verses 19 to 21, uh, it's important not to miss the wood for the trees. The main point is that Jesus is victorious. He has died and he has been raised, and he, has, and he is exalted. You know, there's a clear progression uh, from verses 18 to 22. Verses 18 starts with Jesus' suffering, and as you go through these verses, you know, you, Peter mentions that Jesus suffered and died, and then he goes on to say that he is resurrected, and he, he is ascended, and he is now exalted. Right? There's a lot of Uh, wonderful theology here about the work of Jesus Christ, His suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. If you look at these verses, you you see this amazing reversal that has taken place. Jesus humbly subjected Himself to the Father's will by going to the cross. And then now the Father has subjected all things under Christ. Because of Jesus' submission, all things must now submit to Him. You know, Peter wants us to see in these verses that the suffering servant has become the all-conquering King. So be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged. As Jesus' followers, we are called to submit even if it means suffering while doing good. But we can do so with hope. And what is our hope? Simply the truth that Jesus has won. Jesus has won. We have the assurance that, that as we share in Christ's suffering, we shall also share in His victory. You know, our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And how can we be so sure? It's simply because Jesus wins. The cross leads to the crown. And this is our certainty. This is our hope. And therefore, Jesus' victory is the main point of verses 18 to 22. 
And, and let's keep this main point in mind as we now kind of work, work through some of these verses in more detail. You know, these verses are among the most difficult to understand in the entire New Testament. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said of these verses, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. So if Luther says this about this passage, we want to approach these verses with a lot of care and humility as we seek to understand them. But again, like I mentioned, while the details can be tricky, the main point is clear. It's the victory of Christ that Peter is highlighting. Okay, let's, let's, do, let's dive in and see if we can make sense of some of these verses in, in detail. Well, Peter tells us that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He was crucified in weakness. That's what it means to be put to death in the flesh. But he was raised and made alive by the Holy Spirit, verse 18. Right? So I think a better translation is not so much made alive in the Spirit, lowercase s, but a better translation is he's, he has been made alive by the Spirit, capital S, by the Holy Spirit. And I think this squares with what Paul says in Romans 1. Jesus was, quote, appointed the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's from Romans 1, verse 4. Paul says there, it's by the Spirit that Christ is raised and exalted as Lord. And I think Peter's making the same point here in our text. So for this reason, I don't think verse 19 refers to Jesus' descent into hell. I don't think this passage teaches us the descent of Jesus into hell between His death and resurrection. Rather, I think verse 19 is referring to how the risen Christ proclaims His victory over the evil spirits. And these spirits, Peter tells us, they are now in prison, but formerly they were at work during the days of Noah. And what were they, what did they, do, what were they doing in Noah's day? They were stirring up sin and rebellion against God. Now, as we heard from our sermon series in Genesis, the days of Noah were marked by great wickedness. On earth. And I think these evil spirits were at that time stirring up, fomenting this rebellion against God. But Peter tells us even such wickedness, even such evil as characterized the days of Noah, even that evil has been defeated by Jesus. King Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil. He proclaims his victory over them. You know, at that time, God brought Noah's family safely through the floodwaters, Peter tells us. And similarly, Jesus has saved us from divine judgment. So like Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, you know, this being the bringing of Noah's family safely through the floodwaters, baptism corresponds to this. And this baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, so how, how do we understand that? As we saw last week, when we baptized several brothers and sisters into this local body, baptism is a symbol, it's a sign of going under the waters of God's judgment and then emerging alive in Christ. Baptism really is a sign of death and resurrection. It's a sign of our union with Christ in His death as well as in His resurrection. Now, Peter clarifies that baptism, the, the act of baptism, you know, just going into the pool of water, just coming out wet, you know, Peter clarifies that that 
baptism on its own has no power to save. Right? That, that's not what Peter is thinking about. Uh, rather, baptism saves when it is not merely an external act of washing. That's why Peter qualifies his statement there in, this, in these verses. Right? He says, baptism now saves you, but it's not uh, the removal of dirt from the body. You know, it's not this external washing that I'm thinking about. But the baptism that truly saves is the baptism that points to an existing internal spiritual reality. And what is this reality? Peter says is that our consciences have been cleansed. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And how do we receive this good conscience? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how baptism saves. When it is accompanied, it points to an internal spiritual reality, the fact that we have died with Christ and that we have been raised with Him to new life. That's the true baptism that Peter is speaking of. In other words, Peter is speaking of conversion. Conversion. Baptism is just a, a shorthand way of speaking of conversion. Conversion saves us. How? Because we have died and we've, we've been raised to new life with Christ. Baptism follows faith in Christ. It's a sign of our union with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. We have died with Him to our old sinful way of life and we have been raised with Christ to new life. So baptism saves because it shows that we are one with Christ. And this is, this is how this point is encouraging. Because we know we've, we focus on Jesus' victory as the, point of his, as, as the point of this text, as the point of these verses. So what does Jesus' victory have to do with us? Jesus' victory is significant for us because we have been united with Him through conversion, through being baptized into, into Him, into His body. So therefore, if we share in Christ's death, we shall also share in His resurrection and glory and victory. That, that's the point of Peter's deep, deep theology. I mean, th- there's a lot of deep theology in these verses. But the point of, of all this deep theology is actually very practical and pastoral. Peter's telling us Jesus wins. And because we've been baptized into Christ, baptized into His death and resurrection, we will also win with Him. Therefore, though we endure suffering while doing good, we have a sure hope of victory because we have been united with Christ. This is, beloved, this is the hope that we have. This is why we're able to put aside immediate gain for the sake of following Christ. And this is why we need not be fearful or anxious even as we suffer for Jesus' sake. Even if Jesus calls us to follow Him through the valley of death's shadow, we need not be afraid. In Christ, we can be certain of His victory. Adoniram Judson was a pioneer missionary to Burma, and he had an extraordinarily difficult life. He was married uh, three times. His first wife died on the field. His second wife also died on the field. And his third wife barely survived him. At least six of his children in three of his marriages, they all died in infancy. 
And besides the loss of loved ones, you know, Judson suffered uh, physically. Right? He, he suffered imprisonment. He suffered pain from illness. No, he suffered mentally as well. There were times of deep discouragement and darkness and depression that he had to endure. You know, and, and in his final days, uh, Judson said these words. He said, how few there are who die so hard. And yet Judson could also say in his last days, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I think the school kids will understand this illustration. I feel so strong in Christ. You, know, you notice the paradox, the paradoxical statement that, that Judson is making. You know, how few there are who die so hard and I feel so strong. You know, how are we to make sense of this paradox of grief and hope? You know, this paradox of grief and hope is puzzling to the world. And I put it to us that the only way to explain this paradox is to look to Christ, to trust Him and to be found in Him. In the words of the Apostle Paul, another missionary from a much earlier time, Paul said these words, We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, beloved, if you suffer for doing good, do not be afraid, do not fear. We have the certainty of hope, we have the hope of blessing, and we have the hope of victory in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your Son for us so that we might be brought back to you. Father, we confess that we are guilty sinners, that we deserve nothing from your hand but your righteous judgment against us. We have all turned away from you. We have served ourselves rather than served you. Oh, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that in Him is forgiveness, in Him is new life. In Him is the certainty of blessing and the certainty of victory. So Father, we pray that whatever our circumstances in this week, whatever struggles we may face, whatever suffering you may call us to endure, Father, help us to not be fearful. Help us to not give in to the culture of this world. But Father, help us to worship you, to honour Christ in our hearts to sanctify Him as holy, and to consecrate ourselves to following Him with the boldness that You provide in the Gospel. Father, we entrust ourselves to You. We seek Your grace and help for Jesus' sake. We pray this in His name. Amen.